It's Monday, April 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Dr. Anthony Fauci addressed the pause of the J&J vaccine on Meet the Press Sunday and said he does not expect the use of the shot to be canceled, saying it could be back in some form by Friday. Last week, we also saw another mass shooting where the shooter was able to obtain his guns legally, despite being on the radar of the FBI. And some of those charged with storming the Capitol are claiming that they were just there as journalists, not to cause mayhem. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, the conversation around vaccine passports continues, as many private businesses and some states move ahead with developing methods to verify that people have been vaccinated or have negative COVID tests. At the same time, some states are trying to ban them. Without federal leadership on the issue, people will most likely have to navigate a patchwork approach with many apps to choose from. Ashley Gold, tech and policy reporter at Axios, joins us for what might be next in this discussion. Finally, ransomware attacks continue to be a problem for the country, costing the U.S. $1.3 billion last year. It has been an especially frustrating problem for schools that have been targeted as they try to navigate closures due to the pandemic. Kevin Collier, reporter at NBC News, tells us about ransomware hitting schools. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Pause was to take a look, make sure we know all the information we can have within that time frame, and also warn some of the physicians out there who might see people, particularly women, who have this particular adverse event, that they treat them properly. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's start off talking about some vaccine news. The CDC and the FDA last week paused the use of the J&J vaccine over concerns of blood clots. There was only six cases and about 7 million doses that were administered. But, you know, as they say, out of an abundance of caution, they wanted to look into the data, see what was going on there. Dr. Anthony Fauci was on Meet the Press on Sunday and said that uh, he doesn't think they'll be canceling the vaccine uh, completely and hopes that maybe by Friday we'll have some new guidance on it. That's right. So we saw this pause. It was the first real bump in the road for Biden, who had seemed to, you know, enjoyed a stream of good news, uh, positive improving case numbers had started to reverse in the last few weeks. And then this announcement that they were pausing the use of the J&J vaccine. Uh, and as, as Dr. Fauci said on Meet the Press, you know, they're hoping this is just a temporary pause and that they'll be able to continue administering the vaccine within days. Um, and part of that, Fauci has said, is to allow doctors to understand what they're looking for if they're going to find this very rare side effect. As you said, we're talking about six cases in seven million. One in a million is very rare yeah. uh, and not the type of, of side effect that would make uh, a medication not be used. I mean, you think about other medicines on the market have the same kind of rates of reactions. And so what they want to do is they want to make doctors aware that this is a side effect that can happen and also make doctors aware of how to treat it. So if you get a blood clot in your leg, there's a certain protocol they would follow. This is a different type of blood clot and it requires a different type of medication in response. So they just want doctors to know what they're looking for to be aware before they start re-administering the vaccine. Let's move on to the discussion about uh, gun control and red flag laws. Last week, we saw another mass shooting. This was at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. 
uh, Brandon Scott Hole. He's 19 years old. He was a former employee. He is the one that uh, killed about eight people and injured a bunch of others. He bought his guns legally last year. And this is after he was on the radar of the FBI. His mother called police. They, he said that she was worried he wanted to commit suicide by cop. They seized the shotgun from his home. But there was nothing you know, bad going on at that time, so they didn't charge him with or anything like that. Uh, Indiana does have red flag laws, but you know, it seemed like uh, nothing really happened there. He was still able to get his guns. So wh- how does that impact the conversation now? Yeah, we saw when the president signed those executive orders a couple weeks ago about guns, one of them was trying to come up with model legislation for states to have red flag laws that work. And as you said, this kind of thing, if a family member, a friend says, I don't think the person that I know is is mentally capable of having a gun that they're a risk to themselves and others, they can be added to a list and it allows the law enforcement to say this person shouldn't is a risk. They shouldn't have a gun. Critics of these laws say that when you do that, you take away people's due process, that you don't allow them to have uh, the sort of the amount of scrutiny that they can oppose these and that you could unfairly take people's guns away from them. But I think especially in cases like this, when we see people trying to get guns taken away from their family members and then ultimately, sadly, turning out to be right that they shouldn't have had a firearm, that that kind of supports the idea that they need these ways to do that. And I think we're going to see renewed efforts to the federal government to allow that to happen. And I think to close the loopholes because right. uh, maybe Indiana would stop him. He could have crossed the border into Illinois and bought a gun uh, and not have been stopped. You know, hypothetically speaking, they, they don't want that to happen. So th- I think we're going to see more scrutiny on how we get people who have been identified as risk from buying guns. Finally, for today, I wanted to just talk about some funny maneuvering when it comes to the January 6th Capitol assault. There's a lot of people that have been charged. I think they have over 400 federal cases out there now. But there's a growing number of people who are saying that, well, we're just journalists out there, citizen journalists, if you want to call them. They were out there documenting history. And they're, you know, coming, they have, I guess, YouTube uh, pages and things like that, Insurgents USA, Thunderdome TV, different things. And, And they're basically saying we weren't there to cause mayhem we were just there to document it so <laughs> how does how has this blurred the lines between uh, traditional journalism i guess and if you want to call them uh, you know citizen journalists activists with the cell phone i mean what, how do you respond to that yeah you know oscar as someone who was in the building that Definitely. day as a journalist working as a journalist at the time there's a really easy line to find those of us that were working in the building had been issued credentials we were there and had come from our news organizations to cover it we had our credentials with us people who didn't have their credentials probably weren't working journalists I think the courts are going to sort this out, but just because you can point your phone at something doesn't mean you're a journalist. And just because you documented yourself illegally entering the U.S. Capitol does not mean you were working as the media. That's the whole reason why you got charged. You documented yourself breaking into the Capitol. Right. I think that uh, it's a creative legal attempt, but probably not going to stand up. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. individual states, entities, and businesses are going to decide what's best for them and the customers and people they serve. So you may end up with a bunch of different vaccination passports, depending on what you're doing in your life. Joining us now is Ashley Gold, tech and policy reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Ashley. Thank you. The conversation about vaccine passports right now seems to be 
all over the place. So we've seen a few states, Texas and Florida, most notably, sign uh, some executive orders banning the use of vaccine passports for businesses that might get government funding, things like that. But still, there's a lot of private businesses. Some other states are moving ahead with plans to use these vaccine passports. And the thing that we've been seeing is that the Biden administration said, we're not going to mandate any of this. So what's going to happen next? We feel like there's going to be a patchwork of different things, you know, everybody kind of using a different system, and it could create kind of a mess. So, Ashley, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with the conversation around vaccine passports right now. It's very segmented and it's very dependent on where you live, whether you attend university, whether you're going to school, whether you work for a state agency. It's going to look completely different depending on what you're doing, where you live, what your job is. It's looking like there's going to be no uniformity across the country for how this is going to work. Individual states, entities and businesses are going to decide what's best for them and the customers and people they serve. So you may end up with a bunch of different vaccination passports, depending on what you're doing in your life, but it will not be uniform in any sort of way. You know, one of the things I think about was uh, early on in the pandemic, when we're still trying to get things under control, a lot was being made about contact tracing apps. And that was going to be the thing that was going to get us back to normal because we can follow people that were infected, notify people to be careful, all that. But Again, there's no central contact tracing app. The federal government didn't step in. It was a patchwork of different ones, and it was a mess. None of those ever took off. When we were reporting out this story, I was very much reminded of the contact tracing situation. I remember it was you know, kind of a big deal that the big tech companies like Google and Apple were on board, but with no incentive for the entire country to participate, something like that falls apart pretty quickly. So a lot of private companies and some tech companies are trying to figure some of those out. So far right now, New York has rolled one out for like sports and entertainment venues. You know, they can use it if they choose. Hawaii is working on something so you can bypass that two-week quarantine. Those are the only ones that we've really heard about working on stuff. But what else are we seeing out there? So we're seeing some universities require proof of vaccination for students to come back on campus. We're seeing some individual businesses and services require proof of vaccination. I've heard anecdotally from folks in Washington, D.C., where I live, if you want to go to a D.C. public pool or something like that, they ask you if you've been vaccinated. So it's like I was saying before, it is very, very just broken up and different. Uh, Another interesting thing that we saw, what some customer facing sites like Rover, Urban Babysitter and websites that you can find caretakers, they're letting people put little badges on their profiles that say, I've been vaccinated. I have credentials. I can show you that I've been vaccinated. So that is something like the caretaking industry is doing, which I thought was interesting. Right. Yeah. And in, in those cases, it makes sense, too. You, you Sometimes you'll need to let somebody into your house, things like that, and be in close quarters with people. So it makes sense. And, you know, on the business side, it makes sense, too. Businesses don't want to be liable for outbreaks. They want to get plenty of people back to use their services, right? So for them, it makes sense. And, and it makes sense why they would want to go this way. For Republicans in some of the states, uh, like I said, uh, Texas and Florida, who've already tried to ban some of these things, they say it's an issue of uh, personal freedoms, individual freedoms. But some legal experts have said that the vaccine passports may stand up to that test. Businesses can require them if they choose to. 
I spoke to a legal expert at the University of Pennsylvania, and he basically said being an unvaccinated individual does not make you a protected class under the Civil Rights Act. And businesses can decide who they want to serve or not serve for any reason. And when there's still a public health crisis going on, it would be hard to stand up in court that somebody was discriminating as defined by the letter of the law. So he seemed to think that anybody requiring some sort of proof of vaccination was on pretty solid legal ground. Another thing to note is that in Texas and Florida, both of these bans on vaccine test mandates were tied specifically to entities that receive state funding. So you're not really telling a random restaurant what they can do. You're you're saying what a government agency can do. So it's not as far reaching as it might seem. Ashley Gold, tech and policy reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, you're faced with this unwinnable choice. You know, do I pay and gamble to maybe get everything back? Do I have to scrap everything I have, all my computer systems, throw them in the garbage, buy them fresh, start with, you know, every database I have, all my files all over again? It's it's a nightmare decision. Joining us now is Kevin Collier, reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Ransomware attacks have uh, become an increasing problem in the country these uh, cyber gangs usually target hospitals, city, county governments, uh, you know, even businesses, places where there's not a robust cybersecurity team kind of handling their information. Schools are also part of these targets. And this story, Kevin, that you wrote uh, deals specifically with schools. You know, throughout the pandemic, obviously, we know kind of the mess that the school system has been with remote learning, hybrid learning, in class, you know, going back and forth. And then you add in some of these ransomware attacks, and it has become a, lo- a big problem for a lot of schools where, I mean, in some cases, they had to cancel classes in person and remote learning for a whole week just so they can get back on track. So, Kevin, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with these ransomware attacks. Well, these attacks, the criminals behind them are usually just looking for targets of opportunity. And it can be, you know, like you said, it can be hospitals, it can be small businesses, it can be, it can be anybody. But schools in particular are just such a ripe target and one where the damage is so clear and so profound to everyday Americans. I think the kind of ransomware epidemic is largely unacknowledged, just how bad it is, how frequently it it, it attacks nearly all walks of life. But what I wanted to do with this piece was really talk to the parents. I mean, there have been dozens of attacks on schools, public school systems this year alone during the pandemic. And I, I, I spoke with parents at multiple schools who have had to deal with, you know, they're pulling out their hair over raising their kids, sending their kids to school during a pandemic anyway. And then just, yeah, all of a sudden class are canceled. Now you got to find somewhere for your kid to go because some hackers in Russia decided that you would uh, maybe pay up a little money. Right, exactly. And, you know, for uh, just kind of how weird it's been for 2020, obviously going through the pandemic, ransomware attacks cost the U.S. more than $1.3 billion anyways. So these attacks Mm -hmm. are still going on throughout this whole thing. Tell me a little bit about some of those conversations that you had with parents and their stories. They were universally ones of frustration. People are resilient, of course, but it's it's just kind of like, oh my God. (laughs) People had varying degrees of patience with their school systems. And, you know, most school systems you know, they're not prepared for this. This catches them unaware and they just have to announce to parents, hey, sorry, guys, you got to deal with this. But yeah, I mean, these parents are 
it's a really crappy situation for them to be put in and which I think reflects the reality and the immediacy of kind of cyber attacks on everyday life. In all these cases of ransomware, the, you know, the FBI usually heads up these investigations and there's always this kind of discussion whether to pay that ransom so you can get your files and, and your computer systems back or not to pay for it because, you know, it promotes them, you know, just doing it more. So that's been one of those things. I think the FBI kind of basically says you shouldn't be paying for it. The general guidance is don't pay. And yeah, I think most cyber experts will say that, you know, all U.S. government agencies say they suggest you don't pay. In most cases, it's not illegal to. Paying is not a guarantee that you'll get things back. It might be the easiest way to do so, but it's really hard if you are a school, if you're a hospital, especially hospitals are really, but it, pretty much anybody, you know, you're faced with this unwinnable choice. You know, do I pay and gamble to maybe get everything back? Do I have to scrap everything I have, all my computer systems, throw them in the garbage, buy them fresh, start with, all, you know, every database I have, all my files all over again. It, it's, it's a nightmare decision. Yeah. And even paying is risky too. You mentioned the article, just over half of the victims choose to pay, but then 17% of those that did still don't recover their files because the criminals on the other side have to follow up and still give you back the access to that stuff. And you made mention even, uh, you know, one case in Broward County in Florida that they were trying to negotiate something. The hackers still published uh, transcripts of their conversation on the website. So it just kind of uh, muddies all the water. They were looking for $40 million dollars in ransom to, to release, you know, uh, all, all their school files. We released a redacted version of the transcript the hackers had with school officials in, in Broward. But in the, in the fuller picture, the hackers, and keep in mind, these, again, are, are usually Russians. They're usually criminals who know the basics of hacking. They may not be smart. The full conversation they had, the, the hackers thought that somehow the school officials were connected with the royal family and were just unimaginably rich. Oh, wow. And I don't know if they're stupid or if they, if they <laughs> simply don't have a good grasp of how school systems work or they were just confused. But it was it was a completely incomprehensible conversation. School officials right. were even going to try to negotiate to pay. I mean, they, they made that pretty clear. And then they're like, we can't. We're a school system. We can't get you $40 million. And so, yeah, negotiations broke down. That's crazy. I, you made mention earlier, too, how this is a growing problem and uh, maybe a lot of people don't really realize how big of a problem it is, is the White House. You mentioned the, the Biden administration. They are formulating a plan to deal with this uh, in a broader sense. Yeah, that's right. We'll see it when it happens. They originally were, were thinking six to eight weeks. Now they're thinking they might have a, a formal plan sometimes sooner. I know that the gist of it is going to lean on international cooperation. So for instance, like I, like I mentioned, a lot of times these hackers come in, or they're based in Russia, which does not, formally does not extradite their citizens. A lot of countries do extradite, have extradition agreements with the United States. Russia just flat out does not. And as a rule, doesn't really often prosecute their own cyber criminals as long as they're only hacking outside of Russia's borders. So I think a lot of this is going to be about getting international pressure on Russia to start taking care of their own internal problems. Kevin Collier, reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.